All right, everyone, this is uh, Dave Slyker. Yeah, David is the, and, um, he's the president of uh, our ministry school, but more importantly, he is uh, Tracy Slyker's husband, Finney's father, and he's my friend. So how's that for progression? <laughs> no, I just uh, so uh, enjoy Dave. You know, the thing is about Dave, and I'm just so excited about him sharing, is that um, David, in my opinion, is a prophetic teacher and a prophetic preacher. And those are two different graces in, uh, in a vessel, and very seldom are the two of them operating in someone's life. He's a prophetic teacher because when he, he, he knows the word, he breaks down the word, and there's a spirit of revelation upon the word, but he's a prophetic preacher and that he's able to, by the grace of God, bring people into a prophetic understanding of how to relate in, in terms of how to relate to the times in which we live and really just kind of give it a sense of, of a yes, you know, let's go for it type, type anointing that's on his life. And so I'm just so excited to um, hear him share tonight. Um, besides that, um, I'm funnier than he is. And so I just want to kind of throw that out there. Wow. Wow. <laughs> uh, you like that? No, hey. No, no, actually, it was funny. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. But it was, it, it was interesting. See, but see, I still got more laughs than you just did. I, okay, I, Father, we just thank you, Lord, for... <laughs> <laughs> for our friend Dave. Father, thank you for the anointing, Lord, that's in his life. Father, I ask you, Lord, that you would stir it up in an increased measure even tonight. Father, I ask you that you would anoint, Lord, the proclamation of the word and the hearing of your word. Lord, you'd open up our eyes to your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> amen. Well, if you'd like the notes, they are posted online. You can follow along with those. Um, what I'm talking about tonight, I'm looking at John 13 through 17 as a template or a training manual for pressure and success. I'm going to tell you just right up front what I'm going to tell you, and then I'll tell you. And so what I, what I find profound, many things are profound about John 13 through 17, but it... It really does contain, you could call it the secret of life. It contains the secret of life in that the Lord hands us the way forward. And it's a little bit surprising. He goes, I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to give you the anchor as it relates to the storm of persecution and pressure to come. I'm going to give you the anchor that you need as it relates to the storm of success and glory to come. Both of them are, are storms in their own right. And I'm going to give you the anchor of stability that you need to weather those storms. And here it is. The anchor of stability is found in Trinitarian community. Trinitarian community is our pathway to New Covenant community, and it's actually in New Covenant community fueled by Trinitarian community that we actually have an anchor, but more than an anchor, the way that Jesus defines it, he calls it the fullness of joy and peace or rest. Contentment would be another word. We can find our way even now, and that's the glory. We're not, even though the name of this course is intimacy with the Trinity in the context of eschatology, 
We're not necessarily waiting for the last three and a half years for the benefit of these chapters to come to bear in what they're meant to produce for such a time as this and what they're meant to produce. Again, it's stability in our times and it's in an hour in which everybody is arguing with everybody about everything. The Lord, by getting us into the glory of Trinitarian community, he doesn't just get us into a different conversation. He gets us into an entirely different way of living and enjoying life. And the witness of how life was meant to be enjoyed is going to cut against the the world as it now is and where it is going. If you think the world is unenjoyable now, you just wait. And I want to affirm the world is profoundly unenjoyable. It's not just that sin is unenjoyable. Lovelessness is unenjoyable. Boredom with one another. Contention. The way in which humanity is set against and polarized. It is profoundly unenjoyable. It is profoundly unstable. And it is destabilizing and deconstructing before our very eyes. The very foundations that society is built upon is unraveling. And the more unraveled society becomes, the more unstable community apart from Christ becomes. And the Lord gives us this anchor. He goes, I'm going to give you the pathway, the entryway into Trinitarian community. And if you can lay hold of or begin to the beauty of Trinitarian community, in other words, how God communes within himself, how does Jesus commune with the Father? How does the Father commune with the Holy Spirit? How do they do community within the Godhead? How do they enjoy one another? And how do they relate? And that becomes our pathway. That becomes our way forward to the great surprise. The great surprise, it kind of destroys our you know, our old kind of rallying cry, all I need is you, God. All I need is you and you alone. I'm going to find my satisfaction in you and you alone. And the Lord goes, I love that. I love that you want that. But you're way forward in the storm of tomorrow, both in persecution and success and glory. Your way forward is actually to touch the pleasure of community within me so that you can experience it and express it with one another. In other words, the rock of stability for the days to come is to find stability in Christ and then through Christ, stability brings stability to one another. And as we bring stability to one another in new covenant community built on the foundation of Trinitarian community, are you following all this? If we do it, if we do it, we touch what Jesus advertises as the fullness of joy. The fullness of joy, I'm going to make a controversial statement. The fullness of joy is not found in God alone. The fullness of joy is not found in God alone. It is not good for man to be alone, God said, of Adam in a garden. If the fullness of joy could be found in God alone, then there would have been no need for Eve. God understood that God plus man is man alone. 
What man needed in a garden was companionship to actually touch the depths of what it means to be in God, to be connected to God, to derive pleasure in the relationship, but then to express that pleasure in community with one another. God plus man is not enough. God plus men is the intention of a father to build a family in which we express what he enjoys within himself that we would express it with one another. That's God's desire. And as we express it with one another, as we express what God expresses, what the Father expresses to the Son, and what the Son expresses to the Spirit, what God expresses enjoys experiences within himself. As we touch that, and as we engage with that, and as we begin to experience it and enjoy it with one another, now we begin to touch what Jesus advertises in the fullness of joy and peace, or another word for it is rest. We actually find rest when we experience Trinitarian community with one another. And that rest, that joy that we find and experience in community of that quality with one another then becomes our anchor or our kind of stability in the storm of what's to come. I just want to say this. This is what Jesus is wanting to bring us into. It's more than godly friendships. I love godly friendships, but the Lord is going, you need more than a godly friend. You need to go somewhere with that godly friend in me together. You need to experience something in me that I experience within myself. You need to experience that together. And if you do, you will have more than you need to endure what's coming in the days ahead. So that's the, I just told you what I'm going to tell you tonight. John 13 through 17, Jesus gives us the pathway. He goes, I'm going to, it's, it's, it's profoundly practical, these chapters. And, and the thing that so moves me about it, again, here's Jesus. He's about to go to the cross, but as he's about to suffer the cross, and all that that means, all that he's about to bear, it so moves me that the thing that is on his mind is how the cross begins the changing of everything his friends know related to the world as it is. The cross is about to turn their world upside down, and the thing that's on his mind as he goes to the cross is getting his friends ready for what's about to happen to them. That's so moving to me. Can you imagine you're about to suffer in an excruciating way and in a public and humiliating way? You're about to suffer in a historic way and the primary thing on your mind is the preparation of your friends for all that that means and what's to come beyond that. In other words, Jesus uses the upper room just before the cross. He uses the upper room to prepare his friends for after the cross, and he uses the upper room to prepare them for the next upper room. He goes from upper room to upper room. He's preparing them. And so these, these chapters become this profound template or, or training manual for preparation, both for everything the cross is about to unleash and unlock in Jewish society and everything that's going to be unleashed from heaven as it relates to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to follow. He prepares them for it. And so he... Uh, 
He's getting them ready. He's giving them the pathway to enter into something that they need to endure, to bear the weight. That's what we feel. Again, as we, as we kind of engage in the world around us, we feel the weight of what's happening. What I said a moment ago, that it's unraveling, that society as we know it, the destabilization of the foundations of society as it has been, the economic foundations, the moral foundations, there are, there are underlying foundations that are unraveling and it's causing the weight of man's sin and it's causing the weight of man's rebellion and disobedience to bear down on the human race and the Lord is, I, I just want to say this, the Lord is preparing to break into that destabilizing, rebellious disobedience of man. He's preparing to break in with a revival or two before it's all done. There is going to be glory and trouble in our future, but John 13 to 17 and the way forward, it prepares us for both. So we can watch as he prepares his friends, as he, as he equips them and gives them the tools to bear. And he talks about it all through this discourse. He talks about the demonic attacks, the human rage, the, the notoriety, the suffering, the success that's going to follow them. Because the cross isn't the only thing that's going to happen. The, there's a progression. The cross and his seeming defeat, it's going to embolden his enemies to come at them. So, so he's going to prepare them for that. He goes, what, though it's going to look like we're losing. And that's going to embolden. It's going to expose. It's going to embolden my enemies. And my enemies embolden, they're going to come after you. They haven't felt permission up to this point because they haven't been sure which way the crowds were going to go. But when it looks like we're losing, the crowds are going to shift. They're going to turn against. And when they have permission, they're going to come after you. So I want to prepare you for that, says the Lord. And those days are, I mean, that's instructive for us. Those days are coming. There is a, there is a corporate cross coming to the body of Christ by which it's going to appear that we are losing and the appearance of the church losing, which is, that's terrifying theology for many in the church. Like, we are not going to lose. It's not going to be negative. Like, well, no, there's, there's, there's the appearance of negative an actual negative in our future. There's both. But whichever it is, the appearance of negative or actual negative, what it serves to do, it emboldens the enemies of the cross. It emboldens the enemies of the Lord because, uh, because the thing that, the thing that kind of keeps everybody in a, in a separate piece, the thing that keeps everybody relatively quiet is the underlying nagging question of who's right and who's wrong. It's that underlying question, who's right? The, the church, we as believers, we kind of have a sense that we're right. We have enough of a sense that we're right, like the disciples, that we've kind of hitched our reputations. We've hitched our livelihoods. We've hitched our names. We've hitched our families. We have enough of a sense that we're right, that we've got a lot riding on the promises of God. We've got a lot riding on what the word says related to where it's going. We've kind of thrown ourselves at it, and we're going, I think, I think we're right. I mean, we've, we've put a lot behind the idea that we think we're right, but there's a lot of other people that have given their lives to their way of doing things and their way they think the world should go and their reputations, their names, their livelihoods, their family heritage, and 
what the future means for their kids. They've got a lot riding on it. And so the, the separate piece is the uncertainty of are they right or are we right? And that the cross has this funny way of kind of releasing this moment of seeming failure for the redemptive plan of God and the seeming triumph of the enemies of God by which for a brief moment the enemies of God go, wait a minute, we're right. It's that great moment of doubt for the disciples of Christ. Were we wrong? I mean, we gave up everything. I gave up my fishing business. I gave up my tax job. I, I gave up my sweet spot in that little army of assassins. I, that's Judas. I gave up my... I gave up a ton of stuff to follow this Jewish man around thinking that he was going to be the son of David appointed by God to bring Israel into her destiny. I thought it was going to go a certain way. I've got a lot riding on this. Were we wrong? And of course the other guys are going, we're right, we knew it. We knew it. And again, the crowds and, the, and all of it goes a certain way. It emboldens the enemies. Are you... Are you ready at the heart level for that disconcerting, disorienting moment where not only is it kind of that dark night of uncertainty as it relates to your own future in the promises of God, are you ready for the corresponding emboldening of the enemies of God where they're emboldened in their sense of rightness the way that Jesus said it, he said, they're, gonna, they're going to think they're doing a service to God when they, when they attack you, when they hate you, when they come against you. In other words, thinking they're doing a service to God is another way of saying they're, they're self-righteous. They're, they're settled in their sense of rightness as it relates to the right that they possess to do what they're going to do to you. The, the thing that seems unthinkable to us, the way in which the Bible describes persecution or bloodshed or the martyrdom of the saints. In the West, it seems unthinkable to us because we are naive to what human beings do when they feel a profound sense of self-rightness or self-righteousness or permission related to the, the threat that you pose. I mean, we're seeing glimpses of it even now. We see glimpses of it in the whole vaccination, non-vaccination debate. When people feel a sense of rightness, they have a sense of permission related to what they can say about you and what they can think about you. And when society celebrates that, it only accelerates that sense of permission. Jesus goes, now, if you, if you get where that's going, if you take that seriously, not, with, not by being afraid or not by shrinking back in fear, but if you see the trajectory that society is on and what, and if you actually come out of your naivete related to what men are capable of when they're emboldened in their sense of rightness, it'll give you a healthy sense of urgency to lay hold of that stability in godly relationships related to where we go together. The need to, to engage in the Trinitarian conversation, to lay hold of the beauty of Trinitarian community so that we can express that amongst ourselves, it will end up being a profound and beautiful place of refuge in the storm. We're going to find, in the wisdom of God, refuge in one another. 
as we begin to touch the way that God loves God, and as we begin to express that love one to another, we're actually building our own place of refuge, peace, and joy in the midst of the storm to come. What followed the, that brief moment of emboldened enemies, what followed was a shocking turn of events And that shocking turn, of course, was the the resurrection of Christ, where suddenly it goes from the idea of defeat and the certainty of rightness to now a shocking moment of uncertainty, followed by rage and resistance. And then probably one of the most difficult challenges, even in the midst of persecution, was the outpouring of the Spirit and the the anointing of the power of the Spirit on the preaching of the gospel and suddenly the explosion and the, and the outrageous, fast growth. And if you read the book of Acts carefully, a massive influx of finance. Finance, growth, success, the Holy Spirit, numbers, crowds, resistance. Suddenly there's a new challenge on the early church and Jesus was looking to prepare them for the challenge Again, we're thinking of the challenge of persecution and resistance, but Jesus goes, I want to prepare you for the challenge of success as well. I want to get into you the necessary tools and perspectives and and a connection to me that gives stability in both storms. The storm of success and the storm of persecution, suffering and success. The internal, the external Threats that surround all of that. Sustained, profound peace. Sustained, profound life, joy that are necessary to overcome the fear that Jesus talks about right in 14.1. Don't let your hearts be troubled. The disillusionment, the disorientation, the discouragement, the offense, the betrayal, the failure, the shame. There's a lot that's yet ahead, but the Lord goes, I've got something that can anchor you in the midst of all that. I want you to pay attention to me. I want you to pay attention to how I've engaged and prepared myself for this moment. I'm gonna release grace for you to do the same. Let's start with the cross, that storm of disappointment and disillusionment. There's lots of different ways to to look at the cross. There's lots of different ways to ponder and contemplate the cross. The way I want to do it tonight is I want to look at the cross as as a window into the, the way in which we, I mean this room, and again, there's lots of new interns in here tonight, and so you may not be necessarily so connected to our family or corporate promises and prophecies and hopes related to what the Lord has said about Kansas City and where this is going. But you've got your own promises. You've got your own prophetic story. Uh, If you didn't have a prophetic story of some kind, it's likely you wouldn't be here. In other words, there's some kind of promise set before you that, that you're staring at that would lead you to believe that Kansas City could be a part of the fulfillment of that promise. The disciples were no different. They have... If anything, they've got a prophetic history and they've got a prophetic storyline that's so far beyond ours. I mean, it's one thing for the Lord to prophesy, hey, I'm gonna save a lot of souls in Kansas City. And we're like, that's awesome. 
That's like, that's one of our like sweet promises. Like, wow, that's amazing. I mean, hundreds of thousands saved. That would be amazing. What about you guys, Israel? Like, well, we got this prophecy from Moses about being the head, not the tail of all the nations. Huh. Wow. Did you have like a cool prophetic encounter associated with that promise? Well, yeah, God came down and brought his throne room to a mountain in the Middle East. And it was there that he said these things to us. Wow. <laughs> okay. That's a, that's a prophetic story. So we have, with the disciples, we have this way of understanding how they carried, how they understood, how they walked out this expectation of what their future was going to be, what they thought it was going to be like, what they thought life would be like when the promises came to pass. All of us, we've just, we've just got imaginations. There's a there's an unacknowledged part of us that accidentally uses prophetic promises as a means of dealing with our discontentment with the present. In other words, prophetic promises, a destiny. You know, you might not, again, you might not think in terms of prophetic promises or prophetic stories. You might just use the old youth group term, destiny. I've got a destiny. Or you could use the other one. I've got a calling. Whichever one you want to use, whichever, whichever way in which you've thought about your future, sometimes, particularly in the charismatic world, we think of prophetic promises or destiny or calling as a way of dealing with our profound discontentment with today. It's why people don't like end times teaching. Because if the future through the lens of the word of God, is about, and nobody would say this explicitly. It's just kind of what we feel emotionally. If the future is about being delivered from a secretly miserable today into a glorious tomorrow, and then you show up at the service and the end times preacher goes, it's persecution. <laughs> You're like, no, I, it's like prosperity. It's glory. It's Revival, it's altar calls and people shouting, getting saved. It's all that. Yes, it sounds exciting, but also people will be super angry. Huh. We have this filter. And the disciples and the cross is our first introduction to that filter by which we process the future and what we hoped it would be as it relates to the way the promises accidentally became our projection of our unfulfillment or our projection of our carnal hopes. The manner in which we accidentally kind of transposed our discontent and our ambition onto prophecy. And the cross is this moment in their lives where suddenly they realize, I only read the parts of the Old Testament prophecy that made me feel excited about the future. There's a whole bunch of suffering servant in Isaiah 53 I kind of glossed over. There's a whole part of wounded for our transgression that I kind of moved past 
In fact, I kind of skipped right to the kind of awesome Habakkuk lightning from his hands shattering his enemy passages. And I missed the suffering ones. And it's not like we missed them on purpose. We're not trying to miss them. We're not, we're wanting to be loyal to the word of God, but we accidentally gravitate towards the parts of the word of God that we need in that moment related to comfort in our unfulfillment. And so we project on the future, but the cross is one of those moments where the Lord definitively defines what those prophecies mean in a way that transcends their ambitions and their hopes and their fears. Like in a moment, Isaiah 53 definitively means that. God just said, there's no, there's no more speculating. There's no more you know, Bible studies. What do you think Isaiah 53 means? It's like, no, it happened. It's done. There's a moment coming in which the second part of those Old Testament prophecies is going to definitively happen and our end times debates will end. There is a day in which Bible debates are done. And it's pretty likely that it's not going to look like what any of us thought it would look like because we've got blind spots in our perception and the way that we see the future. And what I find to be amazing, the way that they processed, I mean, they were bold in processing their future around Jesus as it relates to their opportunity. That's how they processed the promise of God. They weren't thinking in terms of Romans 11. They were thinking in terms of where's my office? And the Lord doesn't mess with that so much. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't go, come here, son. It's not going to be what you think it is. He doesn't go, you know, there's this, you're going to be so shattered at the cross. He didn't do any of that. He knows that they're headed for profound disillusionment. But not just disillusionment, disorientation. When the future arrives in God's sovereign purpose in a way that you never conceived of, and you were an avid student of the scripture, but it comes crashing in in a way you thought you were sort of ready for, but realize you're not. And the disorientation of it all, the Lord goes, well, let me, I'll say it like this. I'll say it in my own kind of personal way. When I, when I you know, heard IHOP KC's you know, prophetic story and the prophetic history when I was younger in my 20s, I thought that, that those prophetic stories and some of the warnings that were connected to him and some of the things that the Lord said would happen, I went, ah, good, Lord, you're telling me in advance so that I don't do those things. I will be humble when that happens. I know this is a prophetic story about pride, but you're telling me in advance so that I'll be not proud. I'm so glad you told me in advance. The Lord goes, no, I'm not giving you instructions on what not to do. I'm telling you in advance what you're going to do. Oh, <laughs> but I'd like to get out of that. I know, you don't get out of it by deciding. You don't get out of it by just hearing and making a vow. The Lord goes, I'm gonna help you get out of it, but the way forward, number one, you can't just extract as an as a act of your own will. You can't just refuse to enter into pride your way forward in these promises is to take my pathway that I'm, I'm going to give you to engage in Trinitarian community and express it with one another. And if you'll do that, you'll end up with the means to put big promises into perspective. 
you'll become joyfully content with a small life in the light of big promises. When I was, when I was younger, you know, the, the, the faith movement language was still in operation in the Pentecostal wing that I grew up in. And everything had to be big, especially in youth ministry. If you ever were in youth ministry for like a minute, everything has to be big and everything has to be epic and everything has to be historic and everything has to be about daring to dream that you, little guy, could do big things for God. There's no youth group I went to anywhere, ever, that said, you're not going to do big things for God. You're going to get happy in a small life with a big God. And the most profound thing that you're going to enjoy in your future are godly friends that want to burn like you do. A couple of them. And you're going to get tight and you're going to want to suffer together. It's going to be real simple. You're going to share meals and cry about things not going well and pray for one another and then look back and go, man, how would I have done this without you? That's really what it's going to end up being about. All the big promises are going to happen, but they're going to happen with you and a couple friends going, wow, we did it. <laughs> we made it. Like it's not, it's not as powerful and as big as I thought. The Lord goes, I'm going, to, I'm going to get you into contentment and joy and profound rest and peace in the small as the big happens around you. So that the big that happens around you doesn't take you out like a tidal wave. But yet you're anchored, you're rooted. You're rooted in genuine, meaningful, profound, eternal friendships that are built around who I am, says the Lord, and are built around the potential of where you can go together in me. And then you'll lead some people to the Lord. And you'll pray for people and they get healed. And then hard times will happen and you'll get through it. And confusing things will happen and pressure will come and you'll bond even tighter. Because it's really, it's really quite small. It's really quite simple. But the problem is in your soul, you don't like small and simple. You don't want to do all this sacrifice. and You don't want to do all of this giving up stuff. And you don't want to do all this. I could have been somebody's for small and simple. You want to do it for big and meaningful and significant. Because you got compulsions and cultural understandings and Weird ways of viewing the world, lacking perspective. But I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you something stronger than the pain and the disillusionment in your future. I'm going to give you something stronger than the disorientation. Again, I want to say this again. The Lord doesn't say to them, take heart, you won't be disillusioned. <laughs> he doesn't say, take heart, there will be pain, but you won't feel it. Take heart. You won't be disoriented. You won't be depressed. He didn't say any of that. He goes, I'm going to give you something stronger than that. I'm going to give you something stronger than that. And you will overcome it. You will overcome it. I mean, think about what a not faith preacher Jesus is. It's in the last section of my notes. Jesus at the very end, right before he prays, he goes, I'm going to pray for you. But before I pray for you, I just want to tell you this. I just want to say this to you. That Enemies are going to come. You're all going to be scattered and you're all going to betray and fail me. And he says that. He goes, all of you, all of you are going to be a profound disappointment in about T minus 10 seconds. I mean, it's just so, 
This is the great discipler of men. Like all of you are about to betray and fail me. All of you, like right now, it's about to happen. He goes, but I need you to know something. Even though you're all gonna scatter when the pressure comes and you're all gonna fail this pop quiz, all of you. And when you do, he goes, you're all gonna leave me alone. But then he says the next phrase and I love it. He goes, but I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Just take heart. Take heart. I've overcome. He goes, he goes this, what's about to happen to me, the other comforting thing that he says, what's about to happen to me is going to happen to you. He goes, in the world there will be tribulations. That's how he says it. What's about to happen to me, later on, it's going to happen to you. You're going to get left alone. They're going to scatter. They're going to forsake you. I mean, he might as well have been writing Paul's biography. That's how Paul describes the end of his life. They've all left me. What happened to Jesus happens to Paul. They all left me. I mean, it's kind of sad, but Jesus isn't sad. He goes, in the world, there will be tribulations. In the world, there's going to be disruption. In the world, there's going to be pain. The people around you will disappoint you. Even the ones that you're forging this fire of Trinitarian relationship with, they're, they're going to disappoint you. Like, oh. <laughs> so I'm going to do this thing where I like go for God with friends that want to go for God. And we're going to go out to the fire of Trinitarian glory. We're going to burn with the fire of Trinitarian love. And then kind of somewhere in there, they're going to be profoundly disappointing. Maybe even leave me alone when the pressure comes. It's possible, likely. Because it's likely. If you're in the world, there's going to be tribulation. He goes, but take heart. I've overcome the world. In other words, if I can overcome, if I can prepare and overcome in that moment, if I can touch in the heart of my father as a man what helps me in that day, so can you. There's, I am telling you these things in advance so that when that happens, you're not thrown off into an existential crisis by which you quit, but quite the opposite. Not, not only are you not surprised, you're not hurt, you're not offended, you're, you have compassion. You know that though they, there may be a scattering for a moment, fellowship will be restored eventually. It's just a moment. And through it, you're not alone. The Lord goes, I want to hand you something by which no matter how amazing or disappointing your friends, your spouses, your families, your, I want to hand you something that no matter how disappointing humans can be, you're not thrown off by it because you're not alone. But what is it, Lord? It's so simple. Because here's what I want you to do. I want you to do this. I want you to engage in these things. Do what? John 13. I want you to serve one another, fight for one another. Because I'm about to wash your feet. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to lower myself. I don't, I'm going to do Philippians 2. I'm not going to see myself as better than you. I'm going to come under. I'm going to serve. I'm going to wash you. I'm going to, I'm going to love you right now. And I'm going to do that, calling you to do that for one another. The way that they were wired and the way that we're wired if we're honest, it's like, I'll just, I'll use a kind of a weird example. 
When this goes on the transcription, Mike is going to feel weird about this example. So it'd be like if 12 of you were in a room with Mike and he goes, hey, I'm going to do something right now to model how I'd like you to love one another. He washes the feet. About half of you would think, I'm going to wash Mike's feet right now. That's what half would think. None would think, I can't wait to wash the other dude's feet. It's just not how we think. We think, well, why would we do that? <laughs> what's, what's in that for me? <laughs> what's that gave me? I don't want to do that. None of them are thinking, I can't wait. I can't wait to wash Mark's feet. <laughs> I can't wait. to. I love his upper room. I, I'm going to wash that guy's feet like crazy. It's awesome. Like none of them were thinking that. They, if anything, they're thinking, I'll wash Jesus' feet so he knows how godly and humble I am. So that when he comes into his glory, he picks me. I'll wash his feet so he remembers that I listened. He's going, no, 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 I'm going to model for you how I want you to care for one another. You're about to go through something in which you're not just going to scatter from me and leave me alone. You're about to go through something where you're going to scatter from one another and leave one another alone. And I need you to not leave each other alone. I need you to actually ache for one another and fight for one another and pursue one another. At the end of the day, the, the time that the Lord has spent emphasizing Revelation 3 and the Laodicean church and the lukewarm spirit is as much about our boredom with one another as it is with God. It's as much about his refusal to leave us at our safe distance that we keep from one another in our fear of being hurt by one another. Our self-protective distance that's hiding a lukewarmness towards one another that we are content with in our relationships. We're playing it safe on a daily basis. We're playing it safe with one another. And the Lord goes, you don't understand what's coming in the days ahead in both crisis and glory. You can't afford to play it safe in your relationships. You can't afford to show up to your friendship group yet again, hide in a corner, say nothing, play it safe, make sure you don't say something that gets rejected. Make sure that if you do say something, it gets high-fived. Serve just enough to not be rejected. We are so safe in our relationships because we live afraid related to the people around us. And John was clear. He's clear. The Trinitarian fellowship, the Trinitarian community converted his soul to this point. There is no fear in love. Perfected love casts down fear. And you know that you've been washed by the Trinitarian fellowship when you look at the person in your home group and you're not afraid of what they might do to you. You're not afraid of them rejecting you. You're not afraid of what they might say about you. You have this glorious, holy, redeemed, renewed, I don't care. Followed by a desire to fight for and serve without any regard for how that's going to benefit you in the reciprocal love back that we secretly work for. If I serve them, they will serve me. If I love them, they will love me. No, the rule of law in New Covenant community is this. If I serve them, they will disappoint me. And if I love them, they will not love me back. 
And if I talk nicely about them, they won't talk nicely about me. It is very likely that the people that I'm in a home group with are human. I just realized. I thought when I came to IHOP, I would be with spiritual non-humans. And weird, they're human here. We don't say it that way. We complain. I thought this was a praying community. I thought people were godly here. And I thought people loved here. Clearly, we do the first commandment. We don't do the second. Clearly. Yes, we. And you. And us. But the Lord goes, but, but I'm not letting you off the hook related to their inability to love you back. Somebody's got to start. Somebody's got to do more than have a godly friend and be in a godly home group. Somebody's got to do more than just be nice. What's coming, the intensity of what Jesus is advertising is bigger than nice. We don't get to be nice to one another as the world burns around us. He goes, no, it is, is genuinely an urgent matter of life and death that you wash one another's feet. It is genuinely a matter of life and death as it relates to the condition of your souls, as it relates to bearing the weight of what's coming, as it relates to bearing the weight of man's rage and rebellion and disobedience and sin, as it relates to where things are actually going, it really matters to me, says the Lord, that you observe this new command that I give to you. I am building this new community that's, whose centerpiece is my community that I enjoy with my Father and the Spirit. The fuel for this new community is the Trinitarian community that's been experienced from eternity past. I want to inject it and I want to infuse it into your relationship. I want you to enter into it. I want you to pay the price. I need somebody to lead the way and forge something otherworldly with one another that looks and sounds like me. Therefore, serve one another and fight for one another, even if they do not serve you and fight for you. I need you to wash one another and pursue one another. And if you're wondering if they got it, did they get the message? It's one of the most beautiful parts of Peter's story that we overlook by accident. And it's in John 21, after the events that Jesus was preparing them for, related to the disillusionment and the disorientation and the pain and the confusion. It's after that, Peter is in the shame of his betrayal. He's in the shame of it. And he says... What we know, I'm going fishing. In other words, I have no ministry future. I have forfeited my place alongside Jesus. I have disqualified myself with my betrayal. I'm going back to what I know. I'm going fishing. And the most beautiful line is what comes next. And we don't even see it. The boys go, well, we're coming with you then. I love that part. Right there in John 21, 3, they go, well, we're going too. That's, that's our indicator that they got it. How do we know? They won't leave Peter alone. Peter is wallowing in his self-pity, wanting to isolate himself, and the bros go, not on our watch. You go fishing, we go fishing. Why? Because they know. 
that they're going to be there. They're not necessarily, you don't see them giving them tons of, you know, awesome counsel. It's not like they're being these great pastoral counselors. You know, Peter, in these moments of the dark night of the soul, here's what you do next. What are they doing? They're just there fishing with him. And then they go, there's Jesus. I mean, that, those are their two, they go fishing with him and they go, look, there he is. I mean, that, that's their profound role in Peter's restoration. It doesn't have to be amazing and anointed and filled and dripping with gems of wisdom. There just has to be an internal refusal to leave one another alone, to let one another wallow in our self-pity and our pain. A refusal, like, no, you go, we go. We'll sit with you until there's breakthrough. We'll sit with you until the Lord appears. We'll be with you until the Lord rescues you. We can't be your rescuer, but we can be your companion in the tribulation. It's beautiful. He says, no, serve one another, fight one another, start there. He goes, let that be your starting point. Your entry in a Trinitarian community begins with honoring and self-sacrificially giving of yourself to one another in the same way that we do. You can start to reflect it even before you feel it. Even before you experience the fire of it touching your heart, you can start to enter into it. And if you'll enter into it, you'll position yourself to touch it and be transformed by the fire of it. Because then, I need you, John 14, verse 1, he goes, then from there, once you begin that process of serving one another and fighting for one another, John 14, 1, I need you to believe me. I need you to believe me. Believe that what's about to unfold isn't the permanent state of things. I mean, right now, we're just in the annoyance phase of the deconstruction of society. But the annoyance phase, if anybody here goes on social media, which if you don't, bless you, you are a modern day hero and saint. Because, I mean, it is just the mirror of humanity that we didn't know that we didn't want. But, but in one sense, we peer in. Why do I do social media when I get so annoyed? Because I, I, I peer into, without elevating myself above, that's my goal. I don't want to elevate myself above. I am better than. Look at those simpletons. Look at the way they argue about vaccinations and medical issues. Look at the way they fight. I am so far above them. No, I peer not as a witness from my vantage point of awesomeness, I peer into a mirror by which that's me and I'm them and we're in this together. And as I peer into the human condition, I go, Lord, that's me and help me and help them. Lord, help me find that point of compassion that comes from you. I, I find social media not to be just evil. I find social media to be a shortcut in a prayer life. It's a shortcut. Because right now, we show up, you know, Friday night EGS, Sunday morning church, and we kind of see the sterilized, sanitized niceness of the Midwesterners around us. But social media becomes this shortcut, this glimpse into who we would all be if the conditions just went one click to the left. And it's there. I go, Lord, I want to find your love there. That, here's what's amazing about what I'm calling Trinitarian community. Here's what's amazing about it. Have you ever been late to the party? 
And when you're late to the party, you walk into the room and the room is populated only by people that have been friends for like the last 50 years, it seems like. They finish each other's sentences. It's like they, are, it's like they have telepathy. And I mean that in the metaphorical sense, not in the witchcraft sense. It's like, it's like they can read each other's thoughts. It's like they can, but again, metaphorically, it's just because of intimacy. It's because of history. It's because they know each other well. They laugh at each other's triple-layered inside jokes from experiences they had together that you could never touch. How many of you have felt that feeling? You know what I'm talking about. You've walked into the room, and it's really clear. You guys know each other super-duper well, and I'm just kind of an observer to your awesome friendship. What's amazing to me, again, I'm not talking about that awkward dating couple that is way too into each other. I'm not talking about that. What's a, it's like, am I even here? Or am I your third wheel that you're using to be pure? Okay, so the, uh, so the, uh, oh, some of you just answered my question. So, when you, when you walk into that Trinitarian community, you should feel like I just described. You should feel that way. I mean, you're talking about, from eternity past, a union of friendship and honor and history and story. There's an ancient friendship with a profound unified understanding, an enjoyment, a pleasure in that ancient friendship. It's like you're stepping into something. You almost, at first, it's almost like you shouldn't be there. It's so profoundly beautiful and precious and profound and powerful and intimate. Again, it's like you're a stranger to an to a ancient friendship that's been going for trillions of years with inside history that's far beyond your understanding. And yet there's something profound about that Trinitarian fellowship by which you don't feel like a stranger at all. As soon as you step into the center of it, well, number one, they bring you right to the center of it. That's the glory of the cross, the shed blood of Jesus, the finished work. The glory of the gospel is that you get to experience who God really is in the depths of his profound acceptance of you in a manner that doesn't leave you on the outside of that community, peering in, wondering how you fit in. The moment they spot you, they bring you right to the center of it, and they love you so fully, it's almost like it's all about you, but you know it's all about him. And you're in the middle of it and the acceptance, the power of it, the knowing, you feel known, you feel understood, you feel cherished, you feel honored. In other words, it becomes quickly evident that what you stepped into isn't reserved for himself within himself, but you feel the generosity of God by which he very quickly gives you that which he reserves for himself within himself. He brings you into and enjoys you as if you were always there. And you go, why are you doing this? Well, two answers. Number one, this is who I am. And number two, this is who you were made to be. The way that I love within me is the way that you were made to love within us, the body of Christ. You start to touch the 
what Jesus is talking about, the fullness of joy. Again, the fullness of joy isn't just the singular communion with the fire of God's affection in the place of prayer. The fullness of joy is when you see the fruit of that prayer leak out into the people around you and that the quality of Trinitarian fellowship begins to become enjoyed in the people around you. You begin to, that feeling that you felt when you entered into that community, cherished, known, honored, beloved, accepted. Now suddenly you're seeing it translate to the people around you and they don't feel excluded from this divine secret that you carry, but they feel quickly included, accepted, cherished, honored. The body of Christ is made to be this receptacle of that kind of profound, holy, transcendent love what happens when the body of Christ comes through the crucible of, and the fire of persecution and success, the storm of glory and the storm of rejection? What happens when we come through that crucible, having laid hold of that Trinitarian fellowship, and on the other side of it, we love like he does with that quality of love? What does that do to a generation? It's something stronger than the disillusionment, the disorientation, the pain, the depression, the despair. It's something stronger than the temporary circumstance. He goes, believe me when I say, I'm preparing a place for you, and it's not just a beautiful home. I'm preparing a quality of family engagement for you. I need you to believe me that while it's not easy right now related to the fallenness of the human condition and how that fallenness is impacting you emotionally, how that fallenness is impacting you spiritually, it's not easy to bear with one another. But the Lord goes, John 14, 1, he goes, believe me. I need you to believe me. If you believe me, and if you believe that there's a quality of something that you can have and experience and enjoy, that there's a quality of relationship in me and with one another that's, again, more than being a godly friend and more than being godly to one another, that there's a depth of something that can be touched and enjoyed in, the, in these kingdom relationships that are forged in the fire of that kind of love. He goes, if you believe that it's possible, then the only obstacle isn't their sin, but your unbelief. The only obstacle to lay hold of it isn't their brokenness, but your lack of faith. He goes, if you'll believe me, you'll start serving one another, you'll start fighting for one another, and you'll obey me. You'll obey my commands. When the circumstances and when the pressure and when the difficulties of life start to come crashing in, it becomes an apologetic for disobedience. It becomes a why, what am I doing? Why am I persevering? Why am I continuing on? I don't believe that what he promised is possible. The Lord goes, no, it's, again, it's not the promise of a billion soul harvest that gets you up in the morning. The billion soul harvest, that's gonna happen. It's the promise of a quality of community that I wanna bring you into that will be your rock, your anchor of peace and stability and joy and rest. You have to believe me that I'm gonna bring you into that. Therefore, obey, stay with it, abide, express, 
Talk with me. Talk to me. Say back to me my promises. Say back to me. Say to me out loud the, what you see in my word, in my promise related to that community and the, the quality of it. Say it to me. Abide, John 15. Stay connected to it. Cling to it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Therefore, engage with the helper, the Holy Spirit. Bring the Holy Spirit into your daily experience. And then John 17. Listen, just sit back for a minute and let me pray for you. John 17, when you, if you're wondering if it's possible, if you're wondering if the destiny of the church as it's written in the song of the Father's heart, as it relates to where he wants this thing to go, if you're wondering if it's possible, just sit back, put John 17 audio Bible in and just listen to him pray for you. Last point. Last point. By engaging in the Trinitarian conversation, we're laboring to anchor our soul into what Solomon and the Song of Solomon calls those superior pleasures, the, the exhilaration of engaging in that love within the Godhead. Our life goal, as we start to touch it, really does become, Lord, draw me away and I'll run. Draw me away. But, but the way that the Song of Solomon ends, I know I'm just hammering this point over and over again. The way the Song of Solomon ends isn't her alone under a shade tree with God. The way the Song of Solomon ends, her journey in failure and compromise and restoration and that transcendent, pleasurable, exhilarating love of God expressed towards her, the way that he feels about her, these affections that put promises and purpose and into priority and perspective, that kind of sets things into order. The highest things of love get set into place. The way the story ends is that love converts her into loving a church that has profoundly mistreated her. Even after she's feeling the pleasure and the delight of serving the church, there's still controversy around her. They're still arguing about her. But even my favorite verse, my favorite verse in Song of Solomon, chapter seven, she looks at the church in its immaturity, in its brokenness, in its weakness, in its arguing, in its debating, in its controversy. And unlike earlier in the song, she says, there, there I will give you my love. She's the one that's laying hold of Jesus and going, let's go. I can't wait to love your bride the love that you're destined for on the other end of this Trinitarian conversation is bigger than your pain and your disappointment related to the church. The love that you're destined for is to not view the church according to her worst day as it impacted you and caused your worst day. The Lord goes, I have an entirely different way of you relating to her and it will be you laying hold of me to go serve her because there... There you experience the profound heights, the sweetness, the glory, 
the fullness of joy. One last passage. How do I know? How do I know that the fullness of joy that Jesus is advertising in John 13 to 17 is found in that new covenant community filled with that Trinitarian expression of love? How do I know? Just turn to, if you would, just to close, Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two, verse one. It's a familiar passage, but when you read this passage through the lens of John 13 to 17, it almost becomes a different passage. He says, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, what I described, what we find when we step into that Trinitarian fire, there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection, if you have any affection in you, if you have any mercy towards one another in weakness, this is the key phrase, fulfill my joy. Make my joy complete. What is it, Paul? What's the secret of life? What's the secret of the fullness of joy? How do we lay hold of it? He goes, here's how. Have the same love being of one accord, being of one mind, allowing that Trinitarian conversation to wash away your selfish ambition, to cleanse you of your vain conceit, but in lowliness of mind, esteeming one another as better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also look for the interests of others. John 13. Because the fullness of joy isn't experiencing love singularly and alone. The fullness of joy is when you begin to see that love expressed in the people around you and you begin to go somewhere together. And then together you have the anchor that sustains you in persecution, in pain, in disillusionment, in success, in revival, in more, in growth, in notoriety, in increase. Beloved, it's not just persecution that's coming, it's increase that's coming. Growth is coming. Revival is coming. The outpouring of the Spirit is coming, and we need to prepare our hearts, our lives, our friendships for the growth and the more and the increase as much as we need to the persecution and the trouble. If I found anything in church history and personal experience, it's that persecution can draw a church together and grow success and more can split a church apart. And the Lord goes, I've got the key to both to set you in the midst of community as I envision it. And stay there until it's forged in grace. Let's stand. Could it be that all that we could ask or imagine... Could it be that being filled to the, with the fullness of God, could it be that all we could ask or imagine is more than more as it relates to numerical growth and evangelism? Could it be that God has something for you that's bigger than the stadiums and bigger than the biggest ministry vision anybody could ever come up with? Could it be that the thing that staggers 
and actually brings us into unbelief is that the Lord, before his return, could produce a quality of community in a new covenant people that is beyond anything that's been seen before in history as it relates to a depth of cherishing and honoring and enjoying and accepting and delighting in and blessing and serving hearts alive, daring to risk the giving of oneself fully, not just to God wholeheartedly, but to one another wholeheartedly. Lord, do it. I've done a lot of altar calls. And normally the altar call is, I've written myself out or I've disqualified myself because of my own opinion of myself. I want to do a different one. What I'm saying to you is almost like a foreign language because you've so written off the church because of hurts of the past, disappointments of the past, disappointments of the recent past. Some of you are coming here and you're in the honeymoon phase of awesome, but the honeymoon phase is really about how much you don't like where you came from. And you've accidentally written off parts of the church because the way they treated you or the way they treated others that you cared about or the way they came short and you're realizing that's not only ungodly, it's unbelief as it relates to what God can do with weak people and the kind of church he'll have on the earth before he returns. The Lord wants to get you back into that story, but he wants to get you out of your dignified unbelief as it relates to who the church can be. If you're realizing that's me, I've kind of written parts of the church off. There's parts of the church. It might be the progressive side of the church. It might be the reformed side of the church. Their theology, their practice, you've gone, nah, yeah, Lord, you're gonna unify your church, but probably not them. And you're realizing, Lord, you wanna, I thought you wanted to deliver them, but actually you wanna deliver me into loving them, serving them, blessing them, fighting for them, praying for them. That's you. You wanna be delivered into a fresh love for the church again. I wanna invite you to come forward. I wanna pray for you. Just go, that's me. I've had unbelief related to the church. I've, un I've, had, I've had justified unbelief related to the church's failures, or the church's weakness or brokenness, what leaders did, what they did, what they did to them, what they did to me. I just want to get out of that. I want to get into the Lord's view, the Lord's love, the Lord's commitment, the Lord's zeal. Just as you're up here, just close your eyes, put your hands in your heart. We're just pray for our hearts. Lord, I'm asking right now, fill us, Lord. Get us out of waiting for them to be transformed. Get us out of waiting for them to be changed. Lord, here I am. Here's my heart. I'm asking, fill me. Your vision, your commitment, your jealousy and zeal and delight and acceptance. Even for those in the church, we don't even feel deserve it. God, we don't deserve it. Thank you for the way you love me. You love them. Fill me with that love for them. 
Fill me with that love for your people. Help me, Lord. to come and pray, lay hands on different ones. I believe the Lord wants to minister to you. If that's you, you don't have to even come up. Just raise your hand right where you are. You go, I've been playing it safe because of fear. I've settled for less in my friendships, my relationships. I've been playing it safe. I want to, I want help with that. If you see somebody raise a hand around you, just gather around them. There's a few hands over here. Let's just pray for them right now. Lord, help me. God, I'm asking. Get me out of playing it safe. I want to risk. I want to believe. I want to press. Lay hold of something in you, the fire of who you are. The way that you love. The way that you spent yourself for love. What you risked. What you sacrificed. I want to be like that.
you have with the Father. And that same love you command us to have for one another. Father, would you place it in my heart? Place it in my heart. And put your love inside my heart. Show me more so I can give this love.
transitioning to the prayer room. And with that, we would like to ask you for you to take your conversation outside. If you'd like to continue to fellowship and talk, you're free to do so, but please do it in the foyer or out there in the back doors. If you could please bring your conversations to a close. This is transitioning to the prayer room into a prayer meeting. We'd like to keep this atmosphere sacred for people to engage and encounter the Lord, get prayer. So if you have personal conversations, please make your way out to the foyer on either side.